Well, praise the Lord. What a joy to lift our voices in the truth of our risen Savior. Is he your treasure? You may be seated. It is a joy to, to be with you this morning. Don't worry, we're going to get back into the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, but that will be next week. So in the meantime, it's a joy and a privilege for me to be able to ask you this morning to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. I greet you all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 will be our text this morning. When Johnny Erickson Tada, perhaps most of you have heard of her, was only 17 years old, she discovered just how frail her clay jar body was when on a summer, a warm summer afternoon in 1967, she dove into Chesapeake Bay and became a quadriplegic. Every day since then, her wheelchair, her dependence on others to help her with basic life skills, her experience of nearly constant chronic pain, as well as additional afflictions like cancer and COVID, have been stark reminders of her bodily weaknesses. Yet more than 50 years later, millions around the world would describe Johnny as the most resilient, industrious, fruitful, contagiously joyful Christian they could name. She's an influential author and speaker. She's an accomplished artist and she's the founder of an international organization that ministers to disabled people and their loved ones all over the world. Now, when you read of what Johnny has written in all of her books or hear her speak or listen to her sing, her, quadri her quadriplegia and all her achievements become eclipsed by her unquenchable love for Jesus and her fixation on eternity. She exhibits an otherworldly strength of heart enabling her to withstand blows that might send the fiercest soldier or MMA fighter fleeing for dear life because after each blow that she receives, she still sits in her wheelchair, not losing heart and dwelling upon temporal things, but rather radiating with joyful hope as she looks upward to glory. With this truth in mind, please read with me 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. God's word reads, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond our, all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is God's word. And in light of his word this morning, our theme will be how afflictions fuel our affections for Christ and our longings for glory. How afflictions fuel our affections for Christ and our longings for glory. Point number one, the main reason, the main reason Christians do not lose heart 
The very first part of our verse this morning reads, therefore we do not lose heart. We wanna know what the therefore is therefore, so let's find out. We must go back to the very beginning of this chapter, chapter four, in order to catch the overall flow of the context to see why Paul does not lose heart. So back in chapter four, verse one, you will see Paul said, here's another therefore, therefore, since we have this ministry, we have received mercy. Since we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We have two bookends for chapter four of not losing heart, but there's still a therefore at the beginning of chapter four. So we have to ask ourselves then, what is this ministry he is referring to? And how is this ministry connected to this confident statement of we do not lose heart? Well, we must back up even further to chapter three. So we go back to chapter three to see that it's a ministry of transformation that he's talking about. In other words, the new covenant. This is why the apostle Paul does not lose heart in life and ministry because of the new covenant. The new covenant is a ministry of complete transformation. Now, pausing here for just a moment, the theme of 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense of his apostleship. And as we come to chapter three, we see that a lot of Paul's defense is by him validating his ministry through changed lives. Why was he having to defend his apostleship? Because there were all these, what they would call super apostles, you'll see in chapter 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians, these super apostles, in other words, false apostles that were saying, Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul, your ministry is not legitimate. It is not true. You are weak. You do not wear the suits that we wear. It's about health, wealth, and prosperity. Look at the condition of your life now in your ministry. And this is why he sadly has to defend his apostleship. And what would be best of all to defend your apostleship? What, what, should, what should he use? Some of the, the, the healings that, that God used through his, his life for gospel ministry? No. In chapter three, we see that his defense is by him validating his ministry through changed lives. Changed lives can only come by the new covenant. That is the ministry of transformation. New covenant implies that there was an old covenant. So let's briefly observe the differences between the two covenants, especially as they're laid out in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 3 to 18. Understanding what a covenant is, that's simply an agreement. It is a pact that is made. It is a promise that is made. Look at the two covenants here with a brief breakdown and even let your eyes glance over them in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 3 to 18 as we see the differences of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, we see it was written with ink. In the New Covenant, it is written with the Spirit. The Old Covenant is written on tablets of stone. You'll remember that. And the New Covenant rather is on human hearts. The Old Covenant is really the letter that kills. It's a ministry of death we see in 2 Corinthians 3. Why is it a ministry of death? Because you cannot keep 
the old covenant. You cannot keep the law of God. But the spirit we see in the new covenant gives life. In the old covenant, we see that it came with glory. Just read Exodus 34. In fact, what Paul is explaining here in 2 Corinthians chapter three is an exposition of Exodus chapter 34. It came with glory. Remember when Moses came down? Remember what happened on that mountain? The quaking, the smoking, the thunderous voice of God. The people were terrified. Please only let Moses speak. It came with glory, but in the new covenant, it abounds in glory. In the old covenant, we see that the glory fades. Remember when Moses would come down from speaking with God and, and he had to veil his face because his face was glowing after being in the presence of God. The glory fades in the old covenant, but in the new covenant, the glory surpasses it. In the old covenant, the veil lies over the people's heart. In the new covenant, the veil is removed only in Christ. Old covenant is unable to change the heart, but in the new covenant, we are being transformed. So Paul lays these contrasts out in chapter three, showing us that the old covenant has served its purpose. It has served its purpose. And even as we see in the book of Galatians, the purpose was our tutor to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ and to depend upon him for salvation alone. But the thing about it is, is that the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets knew this and looked forward to the new covenant. Couple examples, we see that Moses predicts the new covenant. God established the old covenant through Moses. But then Moses saw Israel's failure in keeping the old covenant and then he anticipated the new covenant where God's people would be given, quote, a new heart to understand, Deuteronomy 29, verse four. Perhaps you'll remember that when Moses basically cries that prayer to God, oh, that they would have a heart that understands. And so in Deuteronomy 30, verse six, he says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The new covenant, in other words, involves a total change of heart so that God's people are naturally pleasing to him. Not without sin, but increasingly naturally pleasing to him because they have a new heart. Second Corinthians 5, 17, you are a new creation in Christ. Jeremiah predicts the new covenant as well. You'll remember this in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. It will not just be on the tablet of stone, it will be on their hearts. Again, not written with ink or stone, but on human hearts. Ezekiel also predicts the new covenant. This is our last example. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So key aspects of the new covenant are a new heart, a new spirit, 
the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and therefore true holiness. The Mosaic law could provide none of these things. This is why Paul, this is the main reason why Paul was not losing heart in life and ministry. He had the new covenant. He had the promise, he had the gospel, he had Christ. You need Christ to open your eyes. You need the living word of God to open your eyes to see what true and everlasting salvation is. So maybe this morning you're living under the old covenant. Well, I'm not living under the old covenant, you might say. But truly, it could be why you've lost heart and seemingly have no, no hope in life or ministry. Two just quick signs that you're living under the old covenant. Number one, you often feel condemned. You often feel condemned. You walk through life with a guilty rejected feeling because you can't do enough for God or you have sinned but you just can't seem to move on from that. If you're feeling condemned, you might be living under the law and not grace. As Romans six fourteen says, sins shall not be master over you any longer because you are no longer under law but you are under grace. The law drives us to the grace of God. Now, it's true, we deserve eternal condemnation because we have sinned against a holy God. But because of what Christ has done for us, because it was finished upon that cross and our sin debt is paid in full, Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So point number one is you often feel condemned. Number two, you might be living under the old covenant if you think you must work for your salvation. But this thinking makes no sense in light of the the fact of what Philippians 2, 12 to 13 says because Philippians 2, 12 to 13, we can often get confused. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Please notice the text said, for the true born again child of God, you do not work for your salvation. That is impossible, that is ridiculous. That is vain, that is damning. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work in you for his good pleasure. Furthermore, Titus 3, five to six declares, he saved us not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. Please notice what the text says. It says he saved us. And it's not on the basis of deeds which you and I have done in righteousness. We know what the prophet Isaiah has said. All of our righteous deeds, even our most righteous, purest deeds, is as filthy garments before the eyes of a holy God. So the new covenant is the promise that God will forgive sin and restore fellowship with those whose hearts are turned toward him 
not the law, not the old covenant, but towards him. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant and his death on the cross is the basis for this promise. How do we know this? We celebrate this every third Sunday of the month, Luke 22, verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the number one reason why Christians do not need to lose heart is because they have this ministry. We have this ministry, the new covenant. In other words, Christ has fulfilled the law in our place, given us his righteousness, and therefore reconciled us to God, having once been at enmity with him, and we have been made a new creation in Christ. We have been transformed, changed, once we were dead in our sins and transgressions, but now we've been made alive in Jesus Christ because of the new covenant, because he gives you a new heart. And that is why you, dear Christian, do not have to lose heart, <laughs> because he's done it all for you. Do you not have a new heart this morning? Then it would be at this time that I would quote the word of God for you and say, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Put your faith, your trust completely in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his person and his finished work, and you shall be saved. You shall go home this day justified, declared righteous because of his mercy, not your doing. So 2 Corinthians 3, we've seen the truth of the new covenant. Paul is explaining and exulting in it. And now in chapter four, we see at the beginning of it, Paul is explaining why his ministry doesn't seem very successful. First of all, and remember, this is the defense of his apostleship throughout this letter, there is a spiritual war and unbelievers simply cannot understand the gospel that he, pre that he preaches and they can't do this on their own. The light of the glorious gospel has to be given to them and they have to be born again, given a new heart. And we see that in verses one to six. Paul confesses that, he rejoices in it, and he says, this is how it is, this is how salvation comes, but the super apostles and the false apostles are saying, you're doing it all wrong, you gotta do it this way, do it that right, to make it right for the people. And also, Paul lacks all signs of outward success and blessing, as the false apostles were saying. He's afflicted, and Paul's confessing this, he's boasting in his, his weakness here, he sadly has to do that in this letter. He's afflicted, he's perplexed, he's persecuted, he's struck down. We see that in verses eight and nine of our text this morning. But he explains that that is only his outward condition. Spiritually, he is not crushed, driven to despair, forsaken or destroyed. In fact, a state of weakness is common for true gospel ministry, why? so that the glory will go to God and not to the human worker. Paul is simply an, and he joyfully confesses this, I am an earthen vessel, verse seven. I am an earthen vessel, a jar of clay containing an incredibly valuable treasure, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. So Paul does not lose heart or faint because he knows that when this life is over, 
something incredibly greater awaits him. And we see that in our text this morning as we continue further in point two. We see the problem with the outer man. Now, this was a big problem for the outer man because of the false apostles and because of, of the super apostles because they said, man, you gotta be, you gotta be fit, you gotta be right, you gotta be the wow of, of, of pizzazz for the people. But we see here the problem with the outer man and why Paul explains it. Therefore, we do not lose heart, verse 16, but though the, our outer man is decaying. The outer man is simply the visible external aspect of a person. It is our physical housing through which we experience the world. Our bodies function primarily through the five senses, right? Some of us have probably forgotten what the five senses are, but we'll, we'll go over it real quickly. Sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. We are very familiar with the outer man, aren't we? <laughs> we feed it, we water it, we clothe it, we exercise it, we work it, we rest it, clean it, we moisturize it, we nurse it back to health if it's sick, we bandage it if it's cut, we mend it if it's broken, we'll even sunbathe it or paint it with makeup and pierce it and tattoo it to our liking. Now, some of those are not necessary for the outer man, or even as we'll see in a bit, for the renewal of the outer man, but we take care of it. But this is our outer man. Our bodies, we have to remember, are not evil, but they are gifts from God. He desires that we surrender our bodies as living sacrifices to him, Romans 12, one. So once born again, our bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. But the world we live in ever since Genesis 3 is defective and groaning under an endless cycle of decay, right? And corruption. And so the outer man feels the effects of this, right? Romans 8:22 The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. This phrase is decaying means exactly what it says. It is decaying means to corrupt, to perish, and though it be a slow process in most of our cases, it is a certain process, isn't it? The second law of thermodynamics, entropy, right? We are in a constant state of decay. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 6, 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. In other words, the outer man, no matter how healthy, how strong, how vitamin pumped it is, the outer man is decaying, it is dying. You know, there's this thing called the prime of life, right? And it's been, it's been said for years that it's somewhere between the ages of like 21 and 25 where you were in the prime of life. You have reached peak capacity for strength and mental functionality and physical endurance. But if you were to Google it right now, which I did the other day, the new number 
is between 37 and 40 years old. That made me feel so good. (laughs) I am in the prime of life. Don't feel like it. Whether we like, feel like it, or, 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 or whether, we, whether we feel this fact or not, the truth is we start dying the moment we are born, right? You've heard of the story where the doctor comes in and she's holding, he's holding the healthy baby, right? And she says, doctor, how is he? She, she, oh, he, it's, it's not good. It's not good. He's healthy, his vitals are good, everything's great. He's going to die. What? He's going to die. This, this is the truth. And if anyone has ever seen the movie, What About Bob? You'll know that famous quote, you are going to die. James chapter four, verse 14, though at the same time says, life is a vapor. Dear children, dear dear youth this morning, perhaps this seems not too much to receive in. Perhaps you've tuned out. Please don't forget this, dear young people. James 4.14 says life is a vapor. You know that steam that you saw off the cup of your mom or dad's coffee or tea this morning? How it just sort of, that is life. It is but a vapor in view in light of eternity. But the encouraging truth is, The encouraging truth is, though the believer receives persecution, he has perseverance. Though he has a fading body, he has a surging soul. But how so? This brings us to point three. How so? The Apostle Paul, we see here the process within the inner man, still in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. (laughs) Please notice the, the joyful, positive certainty of Paul as he speaks for his colleagues, the, the other apostles as well. This is not a hope so or a circumstantial possibility of renewing his inner man. Why? Well, how do you renew your outer man day after day? How do we renew these bodies, right? Food, drink, exercise, rest, vitamins, medicine, take a shower. But really the basics are coming down to water and food. But what about the inner man? (laughs) What about the inner man? That is your soul. That is who you truly are. Remember what the Lord Jesus told us in Matthew chapter six, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Dear people, we need to learn to live on God and not the bread that perishes. Paul's inner man is being renewed day by day, and this is happening amidst great persecution and temptations to throw in the towel in life and ministry. Romans chapter 12, verse two. Paul, in light of the mercies of God, admonishes the Christian, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's just given 11 chapters in the book of Romans of the power of God in the gospel. Chew on that for eternity. That's what will renew your mind. 
in light of the unbelievable mercies of God, don't be transformed, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be molded to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your minds? Is this another read your Bible more sermon? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. You struggle reading it? That's okay. You can listen to it as well. Colossians 3.10, Apostle Paul makes it clear that the Christian has put on the new self and is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. It is according to Christ that you are truly renewed. If you're seeking any other way for true renewal, it will fail you if it is not according to Christ and the words of life. So troubles were besieging the apostle Paul, opponents were attacking him. In the midst of it all, Paul saw his inner man, the part of himself that was destined for eternal life as being renewed day by day. The hardships of Paul's ministry were real and having their effect, but he did not gripe or complain about how much he was giving up in order to preach the gospel. Instead, he knew that every trouble, every hardship and difficulty endured for Christ's sake was making him spiritually new. This occurred day by day, trouble by trouble. Paul saw every physical difficulty and spiritual attack as an opportunity to mature in the faith. But ultimately, why didn't he lose hope in life and ministry? Because the renewal of his inner man was energized. It was charged by a promise. And that brings us to point four, the promise for the afflicted. Verse 17, for or because momentary Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Please notice the contrasting terms, okay? Momentary, eternal. Light, weight, weighty. Affliction, glory. You have to notice in the middle of these contrasting, all these contrasting terms is a very important verb we have to see here. And it's the verb is producing. <laughs> is producing means to work out, to accomplish, to achieve, to do that from which something results. In 1577, British poet Nicholas Brenton wrote, quote, they must take pain for those who look for any gain. Picking up on that, in the year 1650, the poet Robert Herrick wrote, if there are no pains, there are no gains. In 1734, Benjamin Franklin, referring to financial gain, wrote, industry need not wish, and he that lives upon hope will die, for there are no pains without gains. And then finally, in 1982, Jane Fonda, coined the catchphrase, no pain, no gain. She also threw in and made popular feel the burn, but we won't talk about that one. 
The main point here is no pain, no gain. Listen, it's one thing to afflict and put pressure on yourself to, to accomplish a desired physical outcome or financial outcome, but when the affliction is not according to your will and what you're experiencing and what your eyes are seeking makes no sense in life, that's another thing. That's another issue. This is why we must look at the promise in verse 17 that says, your pain is producing something for you. Your misery is not meaningless. Oh, you can't see it. <laughs> you can't feel it. So we either see it with the eyes of faith and believe it because the text says so, or we will lose heart. I think of John the Baptist. <laughs> Remember what Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11? No man born of woman greater than John. And then in Mark chapter six, we find John in prison. Huh. No greater man than John. He's gotta use him for his kingdom purposes, right? For his glory. And he's in prison now. Oh, what is this? Why did this happen? Because he confronted King Herod Antipas to his face. And when you do that to a king, you better be ready to lose your head. The truth teller said to his face, you're an adulterer. You can't have your brother Philip's wife just because he's visiting Rome and just because she's hand in glove with you in it. You can't do this. This is against the word of God. And so we see also there in Mark chapter six that Herodias wanted him ex executed because of this. She had a, a gripe against him, right? Because of this. But Herod threw him in prison. Why? Being afraid of the people. He loved to listen to John. He loved to listen to him teach, but he was perplexed by it as well, and he feared the people. He even feared John, so he threw him in prison. So there John sits in jail. And while he's in jail, Herod throws his own birthday party, right? And in the midst of his party, he has his stepdaughter dance to entertain all. And Herod knows he's pleased all of his guests because it was a sensual dance. And so to reward her, he says, you did so well, I'm gonna give you whatever you want. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. So she goes over to her mom, Herodias. Oh, what should I ask for? You remember what she says in the midst of this party? this wicked party, now's the time. Now your father will give, us, give me what I want. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And there's John locked up in prison while this party's going on wondering, what is going on? Lord, is, is this how you're gonna use me? 
<laughs> is this what the kingdom is all about? How are you going to usher in the kingdom like this? He hears the swords clanking as the executioners come down to his prison cell. And the text says they came there and did it right there in the prison cell. Herod's servants and executioners say, we're here for your head. (laughs) Now in those final moments of John's life, what was he thinking? I can only hope that he was something like what the apostle Paul is saying here this morning. This light, momentary affliction is working for me. What about your current affliction this morning? No matter what degree it is, what's going on now that doesn't seem very light or momentary? Instead, it feels eternal and it feels heavy. Listen, Paul was no stranger to affliction. We see his list in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 33 of all that he went through. And yet he had a laser beam focus on the gain and not the pain. So much so that he said in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This attitude of Paul's inner man had everything to do with where Paul fixed the gaze of his mind's eye. It had everything to do with where he fixed his gaze, which brings us to point five, the perspective of the afflicted. Verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Did you see that? Do you see what Paul's doing here? Paul is deliberately daydreaming. (laughs) How are our daydreamings go? Do we have a purposeful perspective on what's going on? While we look, consider this main verb, Listen, we look at a lot of things with the physical eye, don't we? But this is the eye of faith in God's promises. While we look means to take aim at, to fix one's eyes upon, to contemplate, to direct one's attention to. It's where we get the word scope. In other words, microscope or telescope. So dear Christian, this morning, this is where tunnel vision is a good thing. This is where it's good. What about Job? Just real briefly. What did Job look at? Through all of his stumblings, in the midst of his trials and suffering, what did Job look at? You know what he looked at? Exactly what our text says this morning, the unseen. The unseen. Listen to Job 19, 25 to 27. Job says in the condition that he was in, as for me, I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold 
and who my eyes will see and not another, my heart faints within me. <laughs> Listen, we live in a Genesis chapter three world, don't we? That is that which is seen and temporal while we look to the Revelation 21, 22 world, right? That which is unseen and eternal. Question, what are you looking at? What's your gaze upon day in and day out? Is it upon the Genesis chapter three world? That is the outer man decaying and the effects of sin, the corruption, the affliction, or it is, on the, is it on the new creation in which righteousness and peace dwells, in which there will be no more suffering, pain, or tears evermore in the presence of our Redeemer? Is that where you're fixed? I hope so, because our brother, the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John, in Revelation 21, verse 5, gives us this declaration statement as he had this moment as he had this revelation now given to us. Revelation 21.5, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. Aren't you glad our sovereign God put the apostle John and abandoned him to the island of Patmos to pen, to write, to obey God in writing these words and confirming to us yet again that his words are faithful and true. He will make all things new. These are the truths we have from the Lord Jesus Christ, the afflicted one who has promised us glorified bodies in his presence forever. So this brings us to our response. How do we leave from here? Number one, dear Christian, dear church, recall God's promises in your afflictions. I know there are many of you going through many afflictions right now. And just because you might seem it's lesser than the other person to your left and right doesn't mean you don't need the spiritual renewal of the living word of God in your life. It does not mean that anymore. It doesn't mean you push cruise control and say, I'll just wait till the affliction comes. Well, guess what? Youth, dear young people, uh, live long enough and the affliction's coming. If by the grace of God, he takes you in a moment, maybe, or upon his return, Maybe, but more than likely, there will be that affliction in your life. And how will we then live in light of that affliction? Number one, recall God's promises in your afflictions. I remember my dad telling me, recounting this story over and over again to me of one of his best friends that that he had in ministry. He came to his deathbed the day that he died and he had been battling Lou Gehrig's disease, also known as ALS, that affects the neurological system, nerves, the brain, how it functions, involuntary movements, not able to speak well, sometimes can't understand at all, but with all that he could muster, one of the last words 
that my dad was able to hear from one of his friends in ministry struggling with disease, he simply quoted Psalm 119, verse 71. He could barely make it out, but he quoted it and he said, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I may learn your statutes. Some of us are only gonna learn what we need to learn of our sovereign, gracious, good God through the afflictions that will be brought through. James 1.12 says, blessed, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved, he will receive, how's this for a promise? How's this for a reward? The crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What about Romans 8, 28 to 29? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Why? For what purpose? Verse 29 tells us so that we can be continually conformed to the image of his son. That's why he's working all things together for good in your affliction, to shape you like his son even to push us to trust in the Father as the Son trusted in the Father in the one who suffered the greatest afflictions in order to accomplish salvation for us. When we trust God through our suffering, we allow him to shape our faith and character even when it does not fully make sense to us as to why we're going through these difficulties, believers have hope that their suffering is not purposeless. You may not see it on this side of eternity, but in glory, you will. You will. Dear believer, get alone with God and preach these truths to your mind until your heart and mind sings with confidence of your good and gracious and sovereign God. And speaking of singing, that brings us to point two. Sing amidst your afflictions. Sing amidst your afflictions. As we began with Johnny Erickson, I wanna quote her. She says, I have lived with quadriplegia for more than a half century and have wrestled with chronic pain for much of that time. I struggle with breathing problems and am in an ongoing battle against cancer. All this makes for a perfect storm of discouragement. Yet when my hip and back are frozen in pain or it's simply another weary day of pain paralysis, I'm strengthened with Jesus' example of singing a hymn as he did in the upper room just before his crucifixion. My suffering savior has taught me to always choose a song. A song that fortifies my faith against discouragement and despairing and instead breathes hope into my heart. And so I daily take up my cross and by his grace, I tune my heart to a hymn. Dear church, what songs are you singing? Dear afflicted one, what are you singing as you go about this vapor of a life? Does our resilience now come from singing songs? No. It comes from seeing our afflictions in the context of ultimate reality. 
Use substantive songs of faith to help you see the unseen. So please let me just quote for you one of my favorite hymns to help us do that. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul. Thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored, be still, my soul. When change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. By God's grace, dear church, may we allow our afflictions to fuel our affections for Christ and the glory that awaits us. One day we will see God's face. Under the curse, now we see myopically. But when we're resurrected, our vision will be corrected. We'll at last be able to see eternal realities that were once invisible to us. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Because who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Why was he so joyful? Because he was going to be with his father and he was going to be with us, his people, forever in glory. That needs to be our joy, both in the pleasures of life and especially in the pains of life. Let's trust our sovereign God together. Let's link arms together. Let's point each other to Christ and know that your affliction is not meaningless. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, dark clouds bring rich blessings as you have shown us and, and sharp winters introduce fruitful springs. And even so, sore troubles often precede the sweetest of consolations. Lord, thank you that there's something better coming, something that surpasses all our pains and even all of our pleasures, a transcendent splendor and an endless blessedness in which we will perfectly be able to glorify your name with all the saints of all the ages. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith and to draw near to you, for you are our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in troublesome times. Comfort your people, Lord, I pray, to the glory of your name. Amen.